time slows down in the winter, don't you find? Yeah, yeah. Like the days just get longer and slower. I I totally think it's like a seasonal personality thing. Well, and and people are getting those like fancy uh, lights and things to try to boost their mood. Yeah, um, I guess. You know what is really super old though? Indiana Jones. Yeah, Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones. How's he gonna move around? Like. They're going to have to CGI him when he, like, swings from a rope because he's going to look so old and slow doing it. Yeah. And, like, the the whole, I, like, half the jokes in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which came out when? Like, nearly 20 years ago now? Was it that long? Oh, my goodness. I don't. I have to, I have to double check. Maybe 15. 15. I think 15. Yeah, maybe 15. Uh, but, like, half the jokes in that movie were about him being too old for it. You know, he, uh, you know, they, they had a whole joke in the the... They took us back in the opening scene to the big secret room full of boxes that we saw at the end of Raiders, and he's like running around inside there, and not he's not able to like make the jumps anymore, or swing on the whip anymore. He's falling backwards. He's like, "Oh, I'm too old for this." So, I mean, if that was the case 15 years ago, I don't know what to expect here. Like at this point, at his age, I feel like he should just be like a tenured professor, just leaning on his rocking chair and just lecturing people and being mad at college kids. And what I'm seeing here, like, you know, Empire has got the the exclusive first look photos like they often do uh, for big franchise movies. And, um, you know, they're, they're leaking bits of the, or they're breaking bits of the plot. You know, it's uh, set in 1969. There's, you know, the, the space race is happening. Um, we've got a... Uh, villainous Nazi type character played by Mads Mikkelsen in the mix, which I mean, I love the idea of that because I love Mads Mikkelsen in, in pretty much anything. But you think we can get a different opponent other than the Nazis? I'm interested in the like the backdrop of the space race because that's usually when in the movies, at least Russia takes over as like the, you know, fearsome Eastern European enemy. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't know why they're they're bringing Nazis back for this, but I hope it doesn't get too cringy in the sense of, you know, they're making a commentary on how Nazis never go away. Like we still have neo-Nazis in this day and age. I guarantee you that's in there. Yeah, I guarantee you that's going to be one of the things. Yeah, I'm not that looking forward to it. Just on like a final note. Like I feel like, and we're going to talk about this, but the lead actor in a big movie is so important. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this kind of is like a good segue into Black Panther 2, though, eh? Okay, well, in that case, let's let's get into it. Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. It's a show about movies, TV, anything with a story and actors on a screen, really. Join Jason Chan and Robert Snow's free-flowing conversation with deep dives into characters and plot with the occasional salty opinion. So get your popcorn. I got mine right here. Let's start the show! Welcome to the 114th episode of the Extra Bud Read Podcast. My name is Jason Chan in Vancouver. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Robert Snow in Toronto. Hello, hello. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the sequel to the very successful Black Panther. We're also going to talk a bit about Black Adam, uh, DC's newest adventure starring Dwayne Johnson or The Rock. And then we're going to skip into TV world with Disney Plus's Andor and HBO's Westworld. So, Wakanda Forever. His people. Do not call him General or King. They called him Kukulkan, the Feather Serpent God. Killing him will risk eternal war. He's coming for the surface world. The first thing we should note is that obviously no Chadwick Boseman. And as I mentioned before, it is really important to have a character, a lead character that you can buy in with uh, on a big movie like this. What did you think of Shuri and Letitia Wright as sort of like the main character? Uh, I heard with this movie that they had to drastically reorganize things, obviously, because um, Chadwick Boseman unfortunately died months before they were supposed to start production on this thing. So I guess the natural 
thing to do on a story front is to make it about Shuri. And, you know, uh, in the mythology of the, the comics, she is like next in line for the throne after uh, T'Challa. So, um, you know, making her the lead is it makes sense on a story front. But as the lead actor, though, I wasn't convinced. That's what, Like, I didn't feel like she carried the movie like Chadwick Boseman did in Black Panther. No. I think she got outshined in by like I think all the other characters to be honest. Yeah, cuz I mean she she plays this nerdy character who is very young and is kind of bouncing between different mentors over the course of the film, you know, she has uh, the the general of the the Dora Milaje um as a mentor of sorts, she has um the uh, uh Lord Jabari mm-hmm played by Winston Duke. He's a bit of a mentor for a chunk of it. Um, her mother, played by Angela Bassett. Um, so she kind of pings around a little bit. They you know, they make the driving force of her character to be more about revenge and the, you know, the double-edged sword that that represents, which is, I guess, one of the more interesting ways to take it. Like, it would probably be kind of boring if her character was just as noble as T'Challa was because mm-hmm. there wouldn't be very much to develop. Like T'Challa comes into the MCU. I guess he was introduced in Civil War as being a very noble character from the get-go. You know, there wasn't a lot. He was always noble, though. Yeah, so like there wasn't there wasn't a lot of development of his character over the course of his initial appearance. And then when he got his first solo film, like he has to go up against Killmonger, obviously. So there's some tension there, but he doesn't really change as a character from what I recall well the big change was that by the end of black panther wakanda opens up to the rest of the world right right right. which is which is where we kind of pick it up and i think the change with bozeman's black panther wasn't that he had some he had undergone through any change he was always receptive of that role i think it was more about how he interpreted and how he stepped into his dad's shoes and how he wanted to do things differently i think right killmonger was a foil for that in that he wanted to use it all for his own selfish greed whereas Chadwick Boseman's T'Challa was more like, hey, let's share this. Maybe we can work together. So he was always more of the optimist, right? So yeah. anyway, um, Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever, we pick it off right with basically T'Challa dying from an unknown disease. That's how they start the movie. The first, I'd say 10 minutes of it is a tribute to Chadwick, and I thought that was quite well done. And then we start going to the movie, and... Shuri kind of takes over because she's the one that's kind of been burdened the most with his death because she's sort of like the techno guru. She was trying to cure this disease and she couldn't and she puts it all on herself. And so that's one Mm -hmm. plot. The other plot has to do with Namor, uh, who is this sort of the keyword is mutant. So they call him a mutant in the movie, which is like basically a hint towards X-Men and Fantastic Four and all the phase five stuff that's going to come in. Or is it phase four? I can't remember what phase we're in. <laughs> anyway, it's all a mess, right? But Namor in this sort of underwater kingdom um, sort of reveals to the universe, the MCU, and to the audience that Wakanda's not the only country with vibranium. And this kind of sets off a chain reaction that gets the whole world up in fervor. Everyone's worried about, you know, having weapons of mass destruction, basically, you know, as a deterrent, Um, which is an interesting commentary, which I don't think they delve really into um, in this one. That's just kind of inferred that it's something that will come up in the following movies. Yeah. And then and then sort of. Uh, lead into Kang the Conqueror, all that stuff, the secret wars and everything. I guess, yeah. I was a bit confused, actually, you know, just in how they positioned Namor's people uh, threat-wise. Like, they they show, obviously, how technologically mm-hmm. uh, advanced Wakanda is, and they have all of these fancy um, weapons and vehicles and things that, uh, that are all powered by vibranium or uh, made stronger or more impermeable by vibranium. But as for the Namor and his people, they show that, you know, they have super strength and other kind of physical capabilities that are given to them because they ingested that plant that was uh, laced with vibranium. So they have those capabilities, but they don't have any like vehicles or weapons or anything. They seem relatively like 
you know. Well, why do you need vehicles when you have whales? <laughs> I guess, but you know, I was just confused about how like, you know, it didn't necessarily seem like a fair fight. It felt like well, it felt like Namor's people got the upper hand in the final battle and we're skipping ahead uh-huh. obviously. But it felt like they got the upper hand because the script needed them to get the upper hand. Like we we never like we saw how like Shuri's destroying them with the Black Panther suit. Uh, we've got the uh, Riri Williams flying around with the the Ironheart armor. Um, they've got two Wakandans wearing their own armor. Like they, they have all these powerful things, but yet these people just keep coming. And it's not clear how they get a tactical advantage over the Wakandans until we see like this scene of them hemmed in. You know, most of the Wakandans are dead. Apparently the Namorian people keep piling out of the water and they have them surrounded. And I'm like, wait, how did this happen? Like, it feels like, you know, it, it's not clear how, how that, how that came to be. I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause the final battle was a mess. I think there are parts of this movie that were quite messy really, but so we'll get to the final part first. But, um, the one thing is there were a lot of subplots and a lot of setting up. So yeah. the reason you and I kind of dislike Marvel is because every movie is a setup for something else. And you could have cut every single scene with Everett Ross and Countess Countessa or whatever her name is, and this movie would have been fine. Was that the Julia Louis Dreyfus character? Yeah, yeah. So the only reason they're in this is so they can set up Thunderbolts, which is like another special team up. Oh. And so Riri Williams is also a setup for a Disney Plus show that's coming out. Yeah. She felt like sort of an unnecessary character, or at least like. I feel her role was too big in the grand scheme of things. They could have done everything without her. Yeah, literally. I mean, with with the exception of giving the Namor's people a reason to uh, be at odds with Wakanda because she was the one, yeah. you know, Riri Williams' machine is the one that reveals that vibranium exists outside of Wakanda. Like that feels that that's just a sort of like a convenient setup for the fight. And yeah, the. And don't you find the sort of um, conflict between Black Panther and Namor kind of forced? Yeah. Like, I don't understand why all of a sudden they're at at war with each other. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. And I kind of get where Namor's coming from. But it's just interesting to pin this entire war on one college girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like- it, it sounds really weird when you say it like that, but it's true. It would almost make more sense if, like, you know, the tension was around the fact that Wakanda was, I don't know, going beyond their borders to find more vibranium. And that was what triggered the fight with the with Namor and his people, you know? it's And the part of the conflict is, like, a huge mystery understanding with some sort of, like, deep sea exploration thing gone wrong. Yeah. Where Wakanda gets blamed for a bunch of deaths that they didn't commit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's one of those things where like, well, you know, Shuri and Namor kind of sat down and had a nice little talk. Maybe this would have been avoided. And granted, they did have that scene, but the, but it was just kind of something that they just kind of just accepted the fact that they were always going to be enemies with each other. That yeah, somehow and... their even their alliance would always be kind of shaky. Yeah, and I guess, you know, they're trying to do something with with their relationship where they show that, you know, Shuri is dealing with these feelings of of revenge or, you know, she feels mm-hmm. like T'Challa was taken from her unfairly. And then uh, Namor is like the example of like what happens when you let vengeance consume you. So, you know, he's he's got this grudge against the surface world for, um, you know, taking his mother away from him and destroying you know, the the land that they came from. Which is exactly the same as Killmonger's story. Yeah. And so he says to Shuri, he's like, oh, I, I heard you say that you want to burn down the whole world because of T'Challa dying. So let me help you with that. But I don't know. It don't, it, it didn't really, that their, their purposes or their motivations didn't seem to be as aligned as the movie thinks they are. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's part of the reason why it felt a little messy and there were a lot of subplots they had to, you know, keep going and a lot of Marvel stuff that they had to put in there. Um, Yeah. And the movie ends up being two hours and 40 minutes long, which it really has no business being that long. Like, (laughs) yeah, it started feeling like like I was binging a show on Disney Plus rather than watching a movie because of how stretched out it was. Yeah, there were at least like three long scenes of exposition. 
where they literally had to explain everything through dialogue. There was yeah. a lot of reading of subtitles in this movie, yeah. which I don't mind, but I mean, it's not really what I expected. Um, I will have to say it didn't seem that long. I think certain parts did drag, but for the most part, anytime was Namor was on the screen, which was quite a bit, I was always infatuated with it. <laughs> um, going back, well, he was good, don't you think? I think he was the best character by far. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, the most interesting for sure. Um, you know, we haven't really seen any Mayan-inspired or Aztec-inspired characters so far. So there was a lot of, like, visual stuff that felt kind of new. Um, so that was pretty cool. And, yeah, like... Yeah, Ruth Carter knocks it out of the park again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, her costumes are, are like, next level, you know, every time she works on, on this franchise. But, um yeah, so he was he was interesting. His motivations made sense. You know, they were a little bit more complex than your average Marvel villain. So it it had all that yeah. going for it. He's um, gonna be an antihero. He's gonna join X Men or something and be play a a good guy for for a certain period of time and then be a bad guy for a certain period of time. But again, this goes back to Shuri being the main character. I did not buy Shuri as a main character. I found it hard to root for her. Yeah. Um, I don't think. Letitia Wright has the same amount of screen presence um, to be a leading actor. I agree um, with that. Yeah. Yeah. To me, Ramonda, the queen, um, I thought she was very much the emotional heart of the story in the first half of the movie. And in the second half, it's Namor. And Shuri is just kind of reacting to things that happened to both of them. Yes. Yes. And I'm curious as to how this franchise is going to go moving forward because... If Letitia Wright is going to be the Black Panther moving forward, I just don't know if she can carry a movie on her own. Yeah, because they they kind of undermined her as the leader of Wakanda anyway towards the end of this film because... Oh, yeah, because she doesn't even show up for her own challenge. She doesn't show up for her own challenge. I wasn't sure if we were supposed to take uh, what Winston Duke's character seriously when he said that he was competing for the, the throne. I couldn't tell if that was a joke. Was do you did you take that as a joke? It, it's kind of his thing to like challenge every new king or queen. Oh, okay. So he's de facto the king now because he was the only one who showed up or Well, I mean, it's implied that he is. Okay. Again, I don't know where they're going with it. It seems a little odd that Black Panther is not the de facto ruler of that country. Yeah. But even if she's not the uh, the queen and she's just Black Panther, um then they go through that scene which is like the the end of the film plus the the mid credit scene where they reveal that um uh what's her name uh Lupita Nyong'o's character uh has Nakia, Nakia has had um T'Challa's son and his name is T'Challa as well so obviously he's not old enough to be Black Panther but it kind of presupposes that you know they're they're making a big deal about introducing him and I guess he'll eventually take on the the title I don't know well, I mean, does the throne always pass on to the male, male heir? Is it a patriarchal society? No, I don't. I don't think they're they're necessarily saying that. But because um, no, that'd be kind of interesting, because then you'd have like a House of the Dragons conflict, right? Right. <laughs> and you have like some sort of civil war where like older T'Challa is like, no, that's my throne. Yeah. You're just a woman. Get out of the way. And she's like, no, no, you get out of the way. Um, so that's interesting. Um, I didn't stay for the mid credit scene. My buddy who I saw it with, um, by the end of the movie, I was kind of, I kind of wanted to leave because I enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it that much. It was already like three hours plus, including all the clearance yes. stuff, right? Yes. And then he told me about the mid credit scene and I was like, okay, well, I don't need to see this. I, I kind of know what's, what's going on. And it's a very odd mid credit scene to have. Um, because I don't know if it's a tribute to Chadwick Boseman and his legacy, or if it's actually part, like a big part of this whole, like phase four, five, six setup. Yeah. I don't know. Cause they, um, they could have very easily integrated that with the real quote unquote real ending of the film where they're just on the beach and doing the rituals. Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, mm -hmm. I, I would have expected them to have something in a mid credits or an end credit scene that linked back to the broader MCU mm -hmm. like they usually do. But mm -hmm. maybe they felt that was in poor taste because the whole thing was commemorating Chadwick Boseman. I don't know. Um, it'll be interesting because if you think about it, if Fantastic Four and X-Men are, say, like 10 years down the road, if Black Panther ever joins their team, he's going to be like a teenager. He's going to be like Peter Parker's age. 
That's going to be yeah. kind of weird. Also, how did how did Shuri even survive getting stabbed through the the stomach? Oh, who knows? I don't know. That <laughs> that last battle was just a bit of a mess. Like your final set piece is a boat. What? Yeah. In both movies, the biggest and best conflict did not take place at the end. In fact, in Black Panther, I think the final fight, the bad CGI kind of kills it. Yes, of course. And then in this one, I think Namor's attack on Wakanda was far more exciting than than a battle on some stupid submarine. Yeah, exactly. It's basically a big, big steel hunk of junk in the middle of the ocean. They would have a hard time justifying like another another scene where a bunch of random civilians got killed because yeah. of something. I but guess. I would say that that is the more impactful moment, you know, if you've got a lot of civilians being killed around you and then, yeah. and then that's, you know, you triumph despite that. I will say though, um, when Namor and Shuri were facing off, I really had no idea what was going to happen. I thought it would end on a cliffhanger. I didn't expect a cliffhanger. I just thought maybe because I didn't think either would die. No, yeah, because it would it would be odd for Marvel to introduce a new character like that and kill him off. You know, especially when they'd taken some pains to kind of shade him as an antihero and kind of make him seem a little bit sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see them killing off like a straight up villain. You know, they've done that plenty of times, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, it would have been weird if, if he died then. I Part of me thought that when Shuri got stabbed through the stomach that she would die some sort of sacrificial death. But Yeah, exactly, right? So that was part of the intrigue there. I think that was the best part. But then they kind of like everything kind of settles down and everyone's made allegiances and alliances and, and things are hunky-dory for now. And it just seems so, like, it seems so incomplete, right? Because you know there's a setup for something else later on. Yeah, and and again, we get back to that moment where they're all fighting aboard the boat, and it's not clear it's not clear how the, the tide of the battle shifted and the Wakandans started yeah. to lose, because the la- I, I vividly remembered, like, you know, it felt like they were fighting to a stalemate almost. Like the yeah, um, they had uh, the Wakandans had technology on their side, and the Namor's people had like numbers and you know, uh, super strength whales. on their side. Whales, um, but lots of whales. It, it just didn't feel as it didn't feel as involving as the 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 big underwater fight in Aquaman, for example, where yeah. that felt like a really intense battle. Like there's stuff happening everywhere. It's not clear who's winning, but when the tide does shift, when Aquaman shows up, you're like, oh, okay, I understand how he gets the upper hand now because he's got the trident and blah blah blah. Um, so. And that that all made sense to me, and, and then and then that naturally moves to the big show off showdown with um, uh, what's his name, Ocean Master, mm-hmm. because you know they've they've uh, the finished the the main part of the fight, and then you know they have the big showdown on top of the submarine. Here it's kind of like the two battles are happening simultaneously, and it conveniently the main characters from the Wakandan side are all safe, but they're surrounded, and then the Namor's people just hold off just long enough for. Namor and Shuri to make peace. So in that sense, it's quite formulaic. But like considering the circumstances, it was still very well done, right? Like considering that they didn't have Chadwick Boseman, they had to introduce Namor, they had to set up Thunderbolts. Um, yeah. I just thought there was a lot to juggle and um, I didn't enjoy it as much as the first Black Panther. Do you do you feel the same way? Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. But it was still, I think, parts of it were entertaining. Yeah, there were there were a few moments that nothing that I could really get behind as like a cheer moment. Like, yeah, I'm here with this movie. Like, it just felt like just another episode of the never ending cinematic universe. Uh, so. Well, when Namor stabs Shuri through the chest, I was kind of cheering on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> I was cheering for Namor pretty hard in this one. Yeah, it's hard not yeah. to. You think he'll regrow that little wing on his ankle? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure he'll fly. Favorite scene? Do you have one? Oh, jeez. Because I have one clear scene where it like stuck in my mind. I guess maybe Namor's uh, assault on Wakanda was was probably one of my favorite moments because we finally see everyone in combat mm-hmm. and we can kind of understand roughly what what their capabilities are. We didn't learn what Namor's weakness was until afterwards in dialogue, which sucked. It would have been nice for them to discover that partway through the fight. But I I kind of thought it was. Like a, a funny sort of way to introduce Namor's weakness. It's like if you have a hair dryer, that's pretty good defense for Namor. <laughs> yeah, just um, dry him out. 
Get a giant hair dryer and just dry them out. Anyway, uh, my favorite scene was actually the ancestral plane. plane. Oh, uh, that was one of my favorite scenes in the original Black Panther too. Um, I love the fact that Killmonger's back, and I like how she he pushes uh, Shuri into quote unquote the dark side. Yeah, so that that suggests that like they can bring Michael Jordan in occasionally. You know, when uh, for for a subsequent yeah. Shuri venture to the. Uh, the ancestral plane, you know, and have him be the like the the little devil on her shoulder, basically. Yeah, he's such a good character, and Michael B. Jordan's such a good actor. Um, I mean, Riri Williams. I've had enough precocious teenage smart geniuses. Yeah, um, Ironheart. The armor didn't. There was no like wow moment when they revealed the armor too. Right? No, like that's no. more like a like a nod towards like hardcore comic book fans. And I don't know if the the midnight agent armor or whatever it's called. Uh, is part of the comics as well but i mean the okoye armor and the whole relationship was just kind of shoehorned in a little bit yeah there are quite a few moments like that but i don't know what what did you give it as a final score i was actually i went lower than you i went three stars um i just i mean fair enough there just wasn't it wasn't a lot that really jumped out at me and um I mean, not the, obviously a lot of very talented people worked on it and a lot of hours were spent, you know, making it look good and all of that. And like we, we called out Ruth Carter's costuming before um, all of that stuff is great. But I just um, having a hard time connecting with some of these characters lately and uh, and really getting into it. Uh, you know, that's been true. That's been true since like the uh, since Endgame, basically. I've yeah, you know. fair enough, because I've always wanted to ask you that because you like Shuri, the, the character in the original Black Panther. I guess yeah, I guess I liked her a little bit more because she was she was kind of fast talking a little bit more uh she had a few more of the like crowd pleasing lines in the first Black Panther, you mm-hmm. know, when when Well, uh, she had a few colonizer jokes here too. Yeah, exactly, you know, and the, I remember being in the audience when that line dropped and my my audience went over the moon for that line. They thought oh, it was really? great. It was huge whoops and cheers and everybody. I mean, it was an opening night crowd, but um, oh, okay. They were they Makes were really sense. into that line. They thought it was great. So I had um, one person in my theater who laughed at every single joke. Really? But everyone yeah. else was kind of like silent. And I think you could tell that there are certain scenes that were really fun for people, but a, a lot of the response was more muted. Right. Right. But I'm surprised he didn't like Namor as much as I did. I thought Namor was really cool. I would I would be down for a Namor um solo film. I think that would be interesting. Um or like something where he's more of a more on the hero side for for a turn i don't know okay fair enough i just thought his backstory the whole like art design and his character was really well done yeah i think between the two uh watery based superheroes i think i prefer jason momoa's aquaman currently but that's just me i think i prefer the aquaman movie um it, it, it it's a tough call it's a toss-up for me but speaking of you know, the DC universe. Oh yeah. Look at us getting a segue in there. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, Black Adam. So this is a long gestating project that the rock had interest in for many, many years. My son sacrificed his life to save me. These powers are not a gift, but a curse. Born out of rage. It's tangentially affiliated with Shazam. Um, so Jimon Hounsou comes back and he's the one that grants Black Adam his superpowers. That Jimon Hounsou character, he really doles out those superpowers almost like, <laughs> yeah, no. on a whim, it seems. I know, right? Seems so easy to just get it. Um, so this one is tough because I think visually there was some really, really cool stuff that they did. It is very much more of a popcorn flick i'd say than wakanda forever like it really embraces its like absurdity and its whole like big explosion stuff than black panther does and i think dr fate with pierce brosnan is one of the coolest characters they've introduced in dc yeah see and and that was like more way more so than black adam because i haven't seen black adam but one Mm -hmm. of the one of the things that really kind of grabbed my attention about the trailers for black adam was the presence of dr fate because he had Mm -hmm. he had been a character that i was familiar with from the justice league unlimited 
cartoon series mm-hmm. from the, I guess it was the early 2000s that was airing. Mm-hmm. And I remember he appeared in a few really interesting multi-episode arcs of that show mm-hmm. in some some really cool stories that, that, that happened on that show. And then uh, finding out that he was going to be here, I was like, huh, I'm not super into Black Adam as a character. I don't see what The Rock sees in the character. I don't particularly care about linking up with Shazam, but give me a Dr. Fate movie. <laughs> yeah. So if you go in looking for Dr. Fate, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay. I think this movie, like Black Panther, a lot of the um, side characters take center stage. Um, although I would take The Rock over Letitia Williams. Oh, Letitia Wright? Letitia Wright, sorry. Yeah, I would take The Rock over Letitia Wright as the... Uh, lead character because the rock has this kind of charisma about him um it's just the problem with him is that you know in every single movie what's going to happen like he's he's very by the book when it comes to his movies and and all of them always have a good ending because he famously said that he would never make movies with a like a ending that kind of makes you feel down yes because hey we all go to the movies to get entertained which is true he does a fairly good job um but again he he has this like larger than life presence and he's this like basically dark Superman and he does a pretty good job of doing it. Um, he joins this team uh, led by Dr. Fate and Hawkeye. Hawkeye is actually quite good considering that I always thought he was really lame in the old cartoons. <laughs> like, Wait, Hawkeye or Hawkman? Hawkeye. Oh, Hawkeye. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Hawkeye. See, there's so many superheroes, I can just never remember. Sorry, Hawkman. You're right, Hawkman. Hawkman in the DC universe is considerably better than Hawkeye because he has wings and he's like an alien from a different planet or something. Yeah. Well, in this one, the wings aren't, are like sort of like strapped to him. Like it's not organic, Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like a Um, falcon, uh, like... um... Sort of. I I think so. Um, It's unclear what his origins really are. But they're not like the wet, white, feathery rings that we see in the cartoon. Oh, okay. It's actually like kind of like more like Wonder Woman's wings in 1984. Right. They're made of metal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's played by a black dude, which is an interesting choice. But he does a killer job. Second best character in the movie after Dr. Fate, I think. Um, it's one of those movies where like Black Adam, there's an origin story that's way too lengthy. And it starts with an exposition. <laughs> and then he gets his powers, loses his powers, gets it back, fights this like totally forgettable CGI villain. Um, and then the movie ends and you're like, okay, great. I guess we're setting up for this to be another franchise. And that's kind of Black Adam in a nutshell. Um, I think it just stands out in terms of like the fights and some of the artistic decisions in terms of how they use CGI is very interesting. Um, I liked it way better than Black Panther. Okay. It definitely, to me, has a distinctive look, which is, I think, one of DC's greatest strengths is that they're not unified like like uh, the Avengers. Right. Where, like, Zack Snyder's look is very different from Aqu- James Wan's Aquaman look, and now this is completely different, and I really totally appreciate that. And then you got Patty Jenkins with Wonder Woman, which is a totally completely different thing. I, I do kind of recommend it just to, just to at least see Dr. Fate and to see how different it feels in terms of other movie superhero movies in terms of the feel. Not necessarily the plot points, which are just very generic, or the characters. But I think, yeah, I think some of the fights are quite interesting and the digital effects are quite interesting. Um, overall, though, like if you're looking for um, something that's different, something that's that'll pull you in more into the DC universe, I don't know if it does that. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I, I liked the first Shazam well enough. I don't feel, I don't feel super drawn into watching the Fury of the Gods sequel that's coming in a few months. It seems like they just hired a bunch of people, famous people to do cameos. That's what it feels like. I don't know what stories, um, direction they're going to go in, but Zachary Levi is really good at Shazam. So I feel like he might be able to at least draw me in. Um, I think the bigger news actually coming out of Black Adam is that Henry Cavill's back as Superman. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that they they have a, was it a mid-credits scene that he's revealed in or something? I did not stay for the mid-credits, but I do know it happens because I read about it online. Okay. I I honestly don't have the patience anymore to sit through 20 minutes of car commercials and verbal commercials, like the the home (laughs) rental thing. 
and then sit through the movie that's like usually 20 to 30 minutes too long and then sit for a credit scene a post-credit scene that's just just filler you know yes or or just like something that you could they could very easily put it at the end before the credits and it wouldn't Mm -hmm. you know have a you could have you could cut to black you could have like the story end cut to black and then the secret scene I do appreciate Henry Cavill as Superman. I am glad he's coming back as the character. I mean, you know, there had been a lot of talk about whether he would. Uh, I think it's hilarious that he's leaving behind the Witcher series on Netflix and handing it off to... Have you seen that series? Well, no. I mean, I watched the whole first season. I didn't watch the second because I didn't particularly care for it. I've, I've never been... Yeah, I, it's not that good. Uh, yeah, I've never... It's so good for him. I've never been uh, particularly into the Witcher as a property. Like, uh, I've... Uh, or anything, but I think it's hilarious how Cavill made a big deal about signing up for that show because he was a huge fan of the books and the games. And yeah, he's a big gamer. He's like a producer in the show, and apparently there were just like fights between him and the writing team on the show because he knew the the lore a lot better than the showrunners. Yeah, the writing's horrible. It's a ter- it's a terrifically boring show. Like. Concerning how dense the Witcher universe is, it is so awful. And I just, I, I think it's hilarious how, how how much has changed for him over the course of being on that show to the point where he was so psyched about it that he kind of like, he kind of said, I'm not going to be in any movies while I'm playing the Witcher. And he got into it, he got into it, he did three whole seasons of it, and now he's bailing on it and they're being forced to change out their lead. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, he put three seasons of work into it. Like, what do you what do you want from? Yeah, like I, I'm not saying he should have a bad time, but you know, it's uh, at the same time, I feel like once he left the show, Netflix should have just canceled it. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. I'm surprised that they're that they're kind of intent on continuing to make it, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, you know me, I have a soft spot for Zack Snyder's DC universe. And Cavill, to me, is really quickly climbing the ranks in terms of all the Superman. At least he has a consistent take on the character. I mean, you can, yeah, you can exactly. Pick, you can pick, um, you can nitpick, you know, how the depiction differs from the kind of shining golden version of Superman that we see in most of the comics. But at least it's, you know, there's a tone. Yeah, and he's a he's a good actor in my opinion, and I just uh, I think he really fits that aesthetic very well. So I'm looking forward to that, at least. And we'll see if uh, if Dwayne Johnson's, you know, constant bragging about how much of a opponent Black Adam is for Superman, if that actually bears itself out. Dwayne Johnson is a one-man marketing machine. Yes. He is and always will be about the rock and the image. And you're never going to have a shitty time when you watch his movie, but it's never going to blow you away. Mm. He's yeah. going to churn out movies that make like hundreds of millions of dollars and none of them will ever be any won't, won't be that good, but they won't be that bad. And I, and I think it's he's one of those actors where like all the movies start to meld together. Yeah. <laughs> where like you kind of forget about like if he's fighting monsters in Jumanji or that that movie based on a video game, you know, yeah. Rampage. Yeah. And you just yeah. Get, you get, get things all mixed up and yeah, but you can tell he's getting older, I think. Like he doesn't he's he doesn't feel as big as he used to be. Oh, maybe he's he slimming was in down his, a bit. like prime wrestling days. I don't know. I think he's just getting a little older, but yeah. uh he's a competent actor though, so I'll give him that. Yeah, I mean he I, I would say he's more entertaining than like other wrestlers turned actors. Like I John Cena has been funny in certain roles, but I don't I don't rush out to see him in anything. Yeah, true. When you watch these actors like, do you ever get affected by their the person that they are? So, like, Letitia Wright, like, their uh, off-screen private life personality and political views. It depends. Does it yeah. impact your take on their characters or how you take in their performances? It depends how good they are, honestly. I mean, you know. Yeah, because like- that, that, I kind of felt that with Letitia Wright where, like, every time she walks on the screen and talks about science, I'm like, but you don't believe in science. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So like, that's always kind of in the back of my head. Right. So, and then with the rock, you're always, you're always thinking like, okay, what, what else is he plotting behind the scenes? Like what other sequels is he thinking about? What other sort of plot lines is he setting up for, you know? Yeah, because he's always got a lot of balls in the air. So you contrast that with Tom Cruise, who you never, you're never in any doubt that he is 100% committed to giving you the best time. I know. I think uh, that's one of Tom Cruise's like 
his greatest strength, I think. Yeah. Right. His, you know, you know that when he's when he's playing Ethan Hunt, there is nothing that matters to him more than being Ethan Hunt in that moment. And same with Pete Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like laser focused. You know that his private life is horrifying because <laughs> of his connection to Scientology. But uh, the <laughs> the yeah, it's there. There's never any doubt that he is putting his body on the line to show you a good time. So the fact that he's Tom Cruise and you still can have a suspension of disbelief with him is incredible. I had a fun time actually. Um I had never seen The Color of Money and um Oh, that's a good movie with Paul Newman, yeah, right? And they they have it on Disney yeah, Plus yeah, yeah. here in Canada. So I queued it up the other night and um uh it had been, you know, fifteen years probably since I saw The Hustler. Um mm. and I'd always known about the sequel that Scorsese made 25 years later and uh and i i put it on and i had a great time and you know seeing don't you think that movie's aged a bit though it's aged yeah i mean but it but it's just fun to see paul newman versus tom cruise and a young spunky tom cruise yeah Yeah. and you don't there's not very many movies about pool out there either so that's a topic that's kind of um you know fresh for uh for no other reason than there's not a lot of (laughs) If, if you're looking for a funny under the radar pool movie look up pool hall junkies Okay. That's a, I think, 2000s era. And it's kind of like a like a mob-tied story about this hustler. Uh, it, it's a good time. Okay. Won't blow your socks off, but it's a, it's a solid, funny movie. Hmm. Okay. I say The Color of Money has kind of ages because it comes from an era where, like, I don't think the plot is always super clear, but you just kind of watch people move around and do things. And it's just kind of like a good time. Like, the, the character development is very uneven. And things just kind of happen out of nowhere sometimes. Yeah, especially the latter half of the film. For yeah, sure, exactly. But then when you, I, th- I think it might be a movie that that improves on rewatch because once you know where the characters are are going, then you can rewatch it and mm-hmm. understand the their motivations a bit better. Maybe. Yeah, fair enough. And and Tom Cruise was a in a very different stage of his career where he was like almost a hyperactive young man. Yes. I mean, he's kind of like the hyperactive old man now, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but he, he was a lot more spunky and needed a lot more ass kickings back then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's like, I totally feel for Paul Newman where he just wants to grab Tom Cruise and be like, you just need to chill kid. Yeah. 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 Um, shall we move on to TV? Cause I'm kind of excited for this next topic. Yeah. And, or we've been, uh, I think we opened last episode, maybe, uh, chatting a little bit about Andor. or I, I remember we were talking kind of about, you know, whether the, whether the future of Star Wars had any, anything to look forward to. Cassian Ander, no matter what you tell me or tell yourself, you'll ultimately die fighting these bastards. Wouldn't you rather give it all at once to something real? And 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 then and then Andor comes out and it's it's the kind I I vividly remember saying something in the past about how I wasn't excited to watch Andor because I thought of it as like a needless spinoff and blah 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 and it's just part of this never ending roster of shows on Disney Plus that feel like for lack of a better word unnecessary like you know stories that just don't deserve to be told but then here's the show yeah but here's this show that is uh, it is so good like well it's also super essential to the rebel alliance story yeah it's one it's one of the best kind of like uh looks at how the rebel alliance is created you know from the ground up you know what this tells me though because i don't know if you agree with me and tell me if you don't Andor is a show that has a very different demographic from the mainline Star Wars movies. In that it's more for adults instead of kids? Yeah, it is all about politics. There's not much action in it. It is a murder mystery. It is political one-upsmanship mm-hmm. among all the characters. And it's uh, it's a story about uh, basically... But someone who's like a little unscrupulous, who has like... You know, questionable no morals. There is no real quote unquote good guy here like Luke Skywalker is. Yeah. Like everyone you meet is already jaded. Yeah. And and I think that speaks to reality. And it just, I, I guess I'm further convinced that I'm just, I've grown out of Star Wars. It is too kitty for me now. Right. And I'm more interested in Andor because it feels like an HBO show. There's so much going on and the layers are so deep. And there's subplots and it gets better as you go on and it's dark. 
I have about two episodes left. So there's uh, a big sort of climax in between where they raid this garrison. And then afterwards, it's a, a lot of setup, but it's still very interesting because Mon Mothma is one of the more interesting characters uh, in the show, and they introduce her much later. This is so much better than Obi-Wan Kenobi, which I, in my opinion, feels very much like a kid's show. This is kind of like, it's a bit cliche to say, but it's kind of like the Game of Thrones of the of yes. the Star Wars universe. I, I didn't want to make that comparison, but yeah, because yeah. it's cliched. It's not, it's it's not the true. best it's not the best metaphor, but yeah. Um yeah, in in the sense that, you know, you have these morally gray characters who and we don't start off with Cassian Andor being already part of the resistance and mm-hmm. being this noble hero. You know, he's he's just sort of, sort of scrabbling for, you know, a way off the planet that he's on and he's not he doesn't have any connections, he doesn't know mm-hmm. anybody, but then some crucial people see the promise in and his skills that he has. And they they figure, you know, he can help them out, you know, if he's pointed in the right direction, um, which is a which is a very interesting way to start it. Look, the one thing I really appreciate is never any mention of Skywalkers or Jedi. That was the initial promise of the Mandalorian, too, that we wouldn't we wouldn't spend much time mm-hmm. around Jedi because it's a big old galaxy. There's a lot of stuff going on that it never touches the Jedi. The Jedi are supposed to be mythical and unknown to most of the galaxy by the time that these events are happening. And then the finale happens. Well, yeah, then for the Mandalorian and then for the latter half of the Book of Boba Fett to be so obsessed with that stuff again, it just felt like, you know, that they were falling prey to temptation. They were They couldn't help themselves from, you know, having cameos from recognizable characters and, you know, doing a lot of fan service. And it feels like Andor has been able to resist that temptation a little bit. The writing is so good. You learn about the characters more than just through exposition. I loved how, I think it was in episode two or three, how they kind of had two parallel storylines where how Cassian Andor is adopted and, and how, how he came to be at his current spot. And I thought that was a really interesting story structure that we had never seen in any of the previous Star Wars works. I loved how these characters have different backstories and different motivations. I love how the bad guys are actually really smart. Yeah, yeah. They, they're not just like stormtroopers running around and shooting blindly. Like they they actually, exactly. the, the guy who is mm-hmm. the, what is he, like a deputy lieutenant or something of the, the corporate mm-hmm. security force. He... They, they figure out where Andor is within an episode and they get really close yeah. to capturing him. And, you know, so there, there's some tension there. Um, I think, too, on like a on a visuals level, it's there's a lot more going on. Like, you know, we're not just seeing it doesn't feel as theatrical or stagey as Obi-Wan Kenobi did, where you could almost you know how they shoot it on that big volume set where yeah, the background yeah, yeah. is all digital. Um it doesn't feel as constrained as the as the Mandalorian or Obi Wan Kenobi does. Like it feels like you can see more of the world around yep. the characters. Yeah. So I was gonna point out the scale of things. Like Cassian Andor is a very minor character at the beginning of the this whole introduction of him. Yeah. And and he really does feel small. And so the conflict feels greater. And as a result, when they triumph, it feels that much better. Like it's such a good underdog story. And there are a couple scenes later on in in the show where Cassian Andor goes to Coruscant or all, all these other planets, and they have these close-ups of like starships and TIE fighters, and you realize how small and insignificant you are. You never get that feeling in the original uh, mainline Star Wars movie because it's because at the end you get like John Boyega riding some camel destroying a whole star destroyer because he's <laughs> he's like running across it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or or like the X-wing flies down this one, you know, ravine on the Death Star and fires two torpedoes into this tiny little hole and it just blows the whole thing up. Yeah. Yeah. In Andor it honestly feels like they're against the odds all the time. It feels like their plan is going to fail all the time. And that's part of the big appeal of the show is that, you know, they're successful, but you're still invested because you don't know how they're going to get there because it seems so improbable. I'm excited to watch the remaining two episodes. Um, When we finish the series, we should talk about it again because, yes, um, there are a lot of 
Star Wars lore questions that I think you you have probably more knowledge than me. Maybe, yeah. And, and I feel like a lot of the minor characters or major characters in past movies are minor characters in here, but they're somehow more fleshed out in this show than in their big appearance in the movies. Right, yeah. And, like, I... I also kind of maybe that'll be the right time to have a have a deeper talk about, you know, does Andor give us hope for <laughs> a new hope for <laughs> uh, for future Star Wars shows? Because because if it, if all of if if the problem is just getting the right writers mm-hmm. and the right directors mm-hmm. on this stuff, um, and you know if if that's all they need, then they just need to put the people who've been working on Andor on other shows and movies even so that, you know, we keep this, the success going because it has felt like you, like you've frequently said in the past that star Wars is like creatively bankrupt yeah. and, <laughs> and it's just repeating the same formula over and over. Again. I've, I've said this before and I'll keep pounding the table on this. We need to move away from the Skywalker story. Yes. Yeah. We cannot have any ties to it. Any ties to it just completely kills it. And so uh, hopefully they don't show up in this story, but, I, it doesn't feel like they will. Um, but you can also kind of see, as you get later on in the series, the seeds being planted for the Rogue One movie. Right. They would have to. Yeah. Because there's there's only so far that they... The, I don't even know if they're planning a second season of Andor, but um, there's only so far they can go, obviously, because I think there's a time-setting graphic or something in the first episode of Andor where they say that it's five years before the Battle of Yavin. So mm-hmm. the, obviously, like... Uh, Andor dies at the end of of uh, Rogue One, so and that happens like a few weeks before the Battle of Yavin. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. at the max, he's only going to be alive for another five years. So they, you know, they're constrained in, in that way. Well, congrats, Disney! You finally did it. You figured out a way to. <laughs> I know. They need to dig up the most minor characters and make stories about them. Like forget about the mainline. That's done. It's beaten to death. Speaking of things that don't last. I was very slow on Westworld. I I feel like I I'm still behind you, dude. I wouldn't fault a lot of people for doing what I did and like putting it on pause for a long time. Um, I remember diving into season one back when mm-hmm. it first came out. Um, I think I was still like you know pirating episodes of it from HBO back in the day. Um, but now I you know I'm an adult now. <laughs> I can pay for my own HBO. So. Uh, that's what we what I did, and um, I I thought to myself, hey, you know, I I feel like I connected with Westworld when I watched the first season uh, when it first came out. So let's let's close it off. Let's let's see how far I can get. Your kind made a sport out of hunting us. You controlled our every move, and now I'm going to do the same to you time to evolve into the species that we were meant to become and i actually had a pretty good time i i remember reading all sorts of different takes on the different seasons over the years even though i wasn't watching the show myself um, people said that they uh they stopped after season two they stopped after season three etc etc you know everyone had their point it's kind of like lost in that respect mm-hmm. like every a lot of people had different kind of um moments with lost where they were like i can't do it anymore it's too uh, too twisty um too layered i can't understand what's going on um so i yeah i wouldn't fault you if you like jumped back into it and then you got a certain ways through it and you were like i'm out <laughs> yeah i you totally described my experience with lost I lasted one season and I was like, I'm out. I'm sorry. Uh, so, you know, Westworld, um, they took a pandemic break like a lot of shows. And then they came back with season four this year. And luckily I'd been watching my way through uh, seasons two and three and just finished with season four like a few days ago. And I was kind of hoping. I thought to myself, hmm, um, the ending of season four was a bit cliffhangery. It's kind of like... It's that they do that thing with the show where they shoot an ending that could be interpreted two different ways. It could either be the end of the show at that point because the writers honestly don't know that they're going to get renewed or it could be a springboard into a new season if if they're so lucky to get that final final season. Um, so do you have do you have any questions about like where Westworld went after watching it back in the day i remember so little westworld because it's been so long 
my question would be like where where do we end up is it kind of like what was that old show saint elmo's fire where like everything is a simulation type deal oh yeah yeah it's all in a snow yeah globe. yeah yeah did they yeah, have the yeah. same thing with westworld because that's my biggest fear with a lot of these sci-fi things where like they write themselves into a corner and then they're like well how do we get out of this i know make everything a figment of our imagination well, I have some bad news for you. You're, oh my god! They're not. It's it's not quite. It was all. Uh, it's not quite. It was all a dream, but it gets close. It, uh, um, so what happened? What happens is like so. If, uh, for people listening at home who have no idea what we're talking about, we did a bad a bad job of introducing the show. But it's been on the air for you know however many years, five or six years, and um, it is the the adaptation of the Michael Crichton novel. Um, it was first adapted back in when was it the seventies or the eighties, um, with Yul This Brenner. was a Michael Crichton. Novel? Yeah, it's a Michael Crichton novel, but it was first made into a film back in the seventies or eighties, I think. Future World. The novel was okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the premise is that you know we're in a near future society where they've uh, invented very lifelike robots that are or cyborgs that are almost identical to humans in every way, but they're still AI, and they are present in society in certain capacities, but the most uh, obvious example of them is being used in these hyper-realistic theme parks, Westworld being one of them, which is a Wild West-themed uh, park. And these robots, or hosts as they're called, form the majority of the uh, interactive elements of the, the park. So people, rich people buy these really expensive tickets. They get uh, brought into the park on a special train. They're kitted out in... Uh, perfect looking west uh wild west attire and all of these storylines play out while they're living in the park and the the hosts being that they're robots can be killed they can be raped they can you know the, the guests can do anything that they want to them and the robots can be rebuilt they're supposed to retain none of the memories of their previous selves when they get rebuilt after they're killed but of course like any ai based story this goes awry pretty quickly and um the main character played by evan rachel wood is a host named dolores she's uh, currently playing through a storyline of a uh, innocent farmer's daughter but she is often the target of rapes and violence because of the these uh, selfish rich people who come through the park and just want to have their way with her and uh she eventually kind of wakes up and she develops this sort of this sense of, you know, she is going to help lead the hosts to freedom outside of the park. She's going to build up a resistance and break free of their bonds and form a new society for the hosts outside of the park. She doesn't really know what else is out there. And then as the episodes go by, you start to learn a little bit about how she's actually the oldest host in the park. And she was the one of the first that the uh, inventors were able to Uh, create into a lifelike AI that felt like a human. And the actual revolt of the hosts takes up the latter half of the first season. And so when we, when the second season starts off, all right, they're off into, you know, they're, they're breaking out into the world beyond what else is out there. And things get more and more screwed up as time goes by. uh, Human society gets increasingly more shaky and, you start to learn more about just how screwed up the humans are as a as a society and how they've come to rely on robots for everything and how they they're basically like two races now and there's a lot of racism against hosts and in turn the hosts have no love towards the humans and it felt like you know as these seasons went on that every the every time a new season began the show sort of reset a little bit and we had to learn about the characters again and we had to figure out all oh, right so they've some of them have had their identities shifted or their you know the hosts uh, have been inserted into new bodies so they have all the memories of their previous body but they have a different face and they have new actors playing them um so that's where some of the the plot lines get really twisty and again i don't i don't uh, fault anybody for dropping off because it can be hard to form an attachment to a character who is getting transplanted into a totally new body. So then, you know, season four kicks off. Uh, there's been another drastic reset of the show. And uh, now it's the hosts who are in charge. They have subjugated the humans and they have 
uh, in, in, instituted a virus, which, you know, obviously being that this, this season was written during the pandemic, um, it's borrowing a bit from real life. The, the hosts have gained the upper hand. They have used a virus to subjugate the humans and turn them into the programmed ones. And so um, it, this builds into like a very apocalyptic scenario where eventually some of the, the, the hosts go completely insane and they just want to destroy the whole world. And Dolores is back and she's able to kind of load everything into a simulation. And she's the only one left. And so that's how the, the whole show ends is her kind of walking off into this simulation saying that she's going to try again. She's going to try to give society another chance, except <laughs> entirely within a computer. Um, so, yeah, um, that was where they left off. They, I, they had hopes on doing a season five and kind of exploring where that simulation idea went. Um, it's definitely one of the more depressing endings for a show. I would say it's not very uplifting, <laughs> um, but I don't know. Would you like based on my that description, though, would you would you consider catching up on it or is it just a little bit too twisty for your taste? I would never say no to anything. God knows there have been many times in the past where I was like, oh, I'm done with this. And I just kind of drawn back in for one reason or another. Um, but I, I would say if I ha- if I watched it, I might have to start from the beginning again. Which kind of bothers me. There was many times when I picked up season two where it, you know, it had been years since I'd watched season one. Right. And I, I had to try to like scrape through my memories to figure out who certain people were and you yeah, know, yeah, how yeah. they got to where they were. Yeah. It's same with House of the Dragon. Like all the names are familiar. All the place names are familiar. But like I really had trouble sometimes remembering who was who and what was where. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's the same with Westworld. Um Granted, I didn't get that far um, into that show originally, so it shouldn't be that big of a deal. But there's so many good shows out there right now. Yeah, right? it's hard to, to to jump into an older show when there's like some brand new stuff hitting mm-hmm. hitting all the services, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So, I mean, I can't say I'm, I'm disappointed by the ending. I would have liked it to be a little bit more definitive um, or at least not go the route of like, uh, we don't really know what's going on. It's a simulation now. Yeah, uh, it, all, it, all of humanity is doomed, you know. It could be a show where, like, I start again and then abandon again. But for better or worse, it held my interest through seasons two and three. So uh, maybe that's because it's a sci-fi and I have a, uh, I have, you know, deep love in my heart for, for all things sci-fi. And sometimes I, I can stick through the worst that a show has to offer <laughs> if it means. Well, it just has, it has, like, a really interesting cast. Like, other than Evan Rachel Wood, the guy from 300 is in this one, Rodrigo Santoro. Tandy Newton is great. She's uh, one of the secret, like, she, she stands up to uh, and sometimes outdo, outdoes Evan Rachel Wood in a lot of scenes. Her character is given lots of cool abilities that a lot of other hosts don't have. Mm-hmm. So Ed Harris is in it. He, he's he's in kind of like a, a one-note performance from most of these, but he's doing the Ed Harris thing that you already know from other movies yeah. and shows. And, um, and it's always so good. <laughs> yeah, like he's he's the best in the world at what he does, uh, the very uh-huh. specific thing. And unfortunately, the show strings him along a little bit too long. And right. uh, if I had one major criticism of the show, it's that he's never killed. Like he has so many, like he gets shot in the chest so many times, shot in the hand. You know, there's so many times where an old guy in his 70s would definitely be dead. And he keeps coming back through all sorts of writer's shenanigans. So does James Martin lose his girlfriend? Yeah, he does. Yeah. I won't I won't exactly <laughs> say how, but um yeah. It always happens to James Marsden. Always. He comes back towards the, the season four, but he's there uh, to lose the hot girl. That's his role in every movie. I think it uh, I think it happens multiple <laughs> times over the course of Westworld. If you're if you're being very specific, you're counting all the instances. <laughs> Um, we should probably have one more episode before the end of the year. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. Recap the the year. There'll be some more uh, big Christmas releases like Babylon and the Fablemans and all the, all the Oscar contenders will be, you know, hitting, hitting screens. Um, a lot of, I I feel like we have a lot of three hour movies in our our future. Oh God. Oh, (laughs) kill me. Uh, (laughs) uh, as long as it doesn't feel like three hours. 
I have a feeling the Fablemans will be easier to sit through. Bab- Babylon might be a bit of a... Really, eh? I was thinking the opposite. Really? Yeah, ba- Babylon, I've heard, is a little bit self-indulgent. And maybe a lot self-indulgent. Oh, okay. Maybe. I just... Sometimes I have a, ho- a lot of trouble sitting through Spielberg films lately. Mm, that's fair. Yeah. It, it, it seems he's pretty self-indulgent these days. Mm. Yeah, and it, you know, it is the kind of ultimate self-indulgence to tell a story about your own childhood. But Yeah, exactly. But then not... He's not calling the characters the Spielbergs. He's calling them. They're like a lightly fictionalized. Yeah. Yeah. The Fablements. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, I blame Chris Nolan. <laughs> yeah. Now everything is. Just had to make a three hour superhero movie. <laughs> okay. I think that does it for this episode of the show. Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. And uh, as we've teased, there will be there'll be at least another extra buttery podcast before the end of the year. Maybe even two if we see enough stuff. Well, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But until then, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chan in Vancouver. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. The Extra Buttery Podcast is written, recorded, and produced by Jason Chan and Robert Snow. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And remember, popcorn is always better with extra butter. <laughs>